Today's reading is from Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi, and it goes along with today's message from Mark's Gospel. The readings from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, from the New Living Translation. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, you know, throughout history, there's been kings and rulers who are called greats. Anybody name any of them? Oh, Alexander the Great. There's a Peter the Great. Who else? Pardon? Catherine the Great. That's right. Who else? Even the Bibles we read about Herod the Great, right? Uh, Genghis Khan is often called the Great Khan. People possessing unparalleled power who are renowned for their influence not only in their own day but really shaping generations to come. But if we look into what made these leaders great, we quickly realize that their greatness is often established through the ruthless abuse of power, the crushing of sometimes entire peoples, and the merciless treatment of all who oppose them. Their so-called greatness begins to wane upon closer examination. Alexander the Great becomes Alexander the Megalomaniac. The great Genghis Khan becomes the most vicious and diabolical of all leaders probably before or since. Greatness indeed. We are maybe a little too civilized in our day to call these guys great anymore, although we still have that name attached to them. And yet, you know, we, we can look at these and say, well, we're not so enamored with tyrants anymore. We've got a little bit of a different perspective on things. But perhaps our obsession with greatness has just changed a bit. But it still continues, right? We're still obsessed with who's great and maybe who's not. We define greatness in ways that fit our contemporary culture, ways that we're comfortable with, ways that seem good to us. But we end up identifying and idolizing those among us who are truly great. Today, we uh, typically measure greatness based on positions of power or people who possess great wealth. We'd say those are great people. Today, we might attribute greatness to the famous or to the popular with all the uh, attending influence that they, they wield because of their fame and popularity. People often achieve the status of greatness based on, on talent, right? We, I even remember growing up when we called someone the great one, didn't we? 
I think. I was there for the Battle of Alberta in 1988. All right. Sorry. Uh, We even measure greatness by some of the higher ideals that we possess, such as generous philanthropy or remarkable achievements for the good of humans. And I, I don't want to take anything away from these people as individuals and, and some, of, some of what they do and some of the good things that they do. But our culture continues to idolize the great and the powerful. We hold them up as celebrities to be envied, as models to emulate. We, we know what great is, right? Or at least we have a sense of how greatness is measured, and usually you and I are not in that category. But could it be that our measure of greatness is just as misguided as when somebody, whoever that was, that dubbed Alexander as great? Could it be that our way of measuring greatness ends up missing the very essence of true greatness? Because, you know, it struck me this week as I was considering this. Would Jesus... By our standards, by our cultural standards, would he be considered great? Not, not now. I mean, not 2,000 years later. We all get the influence and you know, all that. But, but then, you know, when Jesus was walking around Galilee, when he was hanging on the cross, when he was naked and dying, would anyone have looked at him and said, well, that's, that's true greatness? Would anyone you know be considered great? Look around you. Would anyone you sit, sit seated with today, would they be considered great by cultural standards? Mm-hmm. If we want to know what it means to be truly great, we need to look at Jesus because he redefines greatness. He redefines what it means to be truly great. And if we want to live truly great lives, well, then it's Jesus we're going to have to take our cues from. In today's Mark story, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus punches another hole into the cultural ideal of his contemporaries, particularly the cultural ideal of greatness. And he overturns some fundamental assumptions about life. And so we're going to dig into this next story of Mark. We're going to go through it today and see what happens. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible today, we, ins- we put an insert in the bulletin. Uh, on one side, there's a children's uh, ministry uh, stuff. And then on the other side... There's the text for today. So I encourage you to look, look at that as we, as we read through it. Well, leaving that region, they, this is Jesus' disciples, traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. We've seen this before, right? He is desperately trying to hide from the crowds that want him. Why? Because he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man, this is one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. This is the second time now, that Jesus, right after the declaration, you're the Messiah, this is the second time now that Jesus has tried to explain to his disciples that he is going to die. He's going to suffer, be betrayed, be killed. He is going to die at the hands of his enemies and after that, rise again. Remember what happened the first time he he tried this? It was right after the big declaration. Peter, you know, you're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited Messiah. We're so excited about this. And then Jesus begins to explain to them this is what Messiah means. You know, this is what Messiah looks like. It means suffering. It means betrayal. It means losing. It means 
failure. That's what it looks like. And Peter was so upset about this because this idea of a Messiah who suffered was so wrong to them, so culturally counter, so ludicrous, that Peter pulls Jesus aside and tries to shut him down, remember? And Jesus turns on Peter and calls him out, accusing him of essentially aligning his thoughts with the devil himself in an attempt to dissuade him from the path he must take to the cross. Jesus knows his disciples don't get it. He really does. He knows they don't get it. They don't get him. But he's committed to driving it home. He, he's, he wants to, to figure out a way of pounding it through their thick heads. So he, he once again hides away and he spends some focused time with his disciples. And you can just sort of see him. Read my lips. Messiah means suffering. Messiah means pain. Messiah means betrayal. Messiah means rising again. After I have died at the hands of my enemies. But the disciples just can't get it. They can't connect what Jesus is saying with what they believe about God's Messiah, what God's Messiah should look like, what he should do, and and how he should respond. And They just can't put these two things together. And even though he's not speaking in parables, he's being exceedingly clear with them, they're confused, and at this point, they're afraid to admit it, because they're at that point, we've all been at that point, right? Like, I know I'm supposed to be getting it by now, but I'm really not getting it. And so instead of Instead of just admitting that, I'm sorry, I just, Jesus, don't understand what you're saying. They do what a lot of us do. They just kind of turn the conversation somewhere else. Well, these guys, they, they figure, well, if I can't figure out what Jesus is saying about himself, let's, let's try to figure out how we're ranking among us as a group. They turn inward and begin to try to figure out specifically who among them ranks the greatest. It's a funny conversation. Our junior high kids do it often. Maybe not quite out loud, but the ranking still continues, right? We would try to figure out who and what, where everyone says, well, that's what they did. After they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, this is a little later on in Mark 9, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? You remember, Jesus must have been having this experience where he's trying to tell them something, but there's another conversation going on, right? He's trying to tell them something important about himself, but they're kind of murmuring and talking, and the guys at the way at the back of the line are up to something else. So what, are you, what were you discussing about on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Mm. Ouch. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus is so eager, so committed, so intense for his disciples to understand his impending suffering and death. He doesn't want them to be caught unawares. He wants them to know. He wants them to understand that this is where I'm going so that when it happens, you'll get it. So he's avoiding crowds of needy people. He's walking along some deserted back road and he's focusing exclusively on his closest followers. But instead of getting it, instead of even engaging them, they're arguing about who among them is the greatest. No, I had to ask, why? Like, what, what kind of might have sparked this? Like, we know there's jockeying for position that goes on all around us, but, but specifically this. What might have sparked this conversation? I wondered, could it be that there was jealousy that had crept in due to the fact that just recently, three of the special ones, Peter, James, and John, got to go on a a mountain excursion with Jesus, and when they came back, guess what? Jesus had had this amazing transfiguration thing, and and then to top it all off, they had seen Moses and Elijah. You know how how the other nine are feeling? And so there's maybe some jealousy creeping. And then to top it all off, the nine who were left, 
Couldn't even cast a demon out like they were supposed to be able to. And I just wonder if the two stories just behind this had contributed to this feeling of, you know, I'm better than you guys. (coughs) Clearly Jesus favors me. Right? Clearly he, you know, he's got a bit of a, you know, who's in the inner circle with Jesus. Right? So I just wonder if that's kind of what's been going on. And and so there's this jockeying for position that's happening. They're arguing, (laughs) but they know they shouldn't be. So they don't even answer Jesus when he asks. Yeah. It's amazing. Here they are, ranking themselves according to who's the greatest, while the greatest one among them is trying to explain what true greatness looks like, and it's going to mean him going to the cross and dying. So Jesus sat down, and this is, this is one of those, this is going on with the text. Jesus sat down, it's, it's like a rabbi formally instructing his disciples, his students. He calls the twelve students to, to him, and he said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Jesus, the greatest one of all, is going to suffer and is going to die in the greatest act of love and true power in history. And he shows us what greatness looks like, yes, right now in his teaching, but ultimately in his life and in his death and his resurrection. And when he does that, it turns all of the cultural assumptions that we carry about greatness, about power, about position, it turns it on its head. It inverts the whole paradigm. It changes all the rules. Greatness in God's kingdom, Jesus says, is not marked by the heights to which you've climbed, but really by the depths in which you've served. That changes everything. Let me say that again. The greatness in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not marked by the heights to which you've climbed, which is, let's be honest, that's how we measure greatness. However we define that height, that's how we measure greatness. And so we look around, we look at history, we look at people today, and we say, that's the person who's great because they've achieved or they've, they've reached a certain height. But Jesus says, that's not what it is. That's not what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Rather, it's marked by those you've served in the last place, by taking the last place yourself. If you want to be first, take the position of a servant. If you want to be great, lay down your life for others. And why can Jesus say that? Because that's what he's doing and that's what he's going to do. It's because he's the one, as we heard Maddie read in Philippians He's the one who gave up his divine privileges. Jesus took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. It's Jesus who humbled himself in obedience to God and died that criminal's death on the cross. And in that act of self-sacrifice, Jesus revealed true greatness to the world. Not that the world could see it. Not that they recognized it. Not that they saw this is great. I mean, there was, there was those who did. But as a whole, they didn't recognize that. But it was through this act of divine self-giving that all people could be restored to God. All creation recreated. All life redeemed. Jesus in his life, in his death, and here in his teaching showed us that it's through the humble, hidden, sacrificial, last place that the truly greatest most powerful, life-changing things have ever happened. Jesus didn't pay for the sins of the world with a bloody sword in his hand. 
but with a bloody back. Jesus didn't influence the destiny of the world through some divine exhibition of might, but rather through the last expiration of his breath. This is the way of true power and true greatness. Seen in the humbling and the humiliating death of Jesus. This last place loser Messiah. This is what he's trying to show and tell his disciples. And then, as he's teaching his disciples, he he drives the point home with quite a simple illustration. Something we've all heard if we've been around church circles. We've heard it before. He put a little child among them. There was kids around. He, He drew one in close. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this, on my behalf or in my name, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. Now, culturally, this can be a little strange for us. You think, why a little child? I mean, in our culture, children are thought of as quite special, and, 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 and they're kind of all under feet all the time, right? And they're part of life, and, and we were kind of okay with that. And Back then, kids were loved and valued. Of course they were. But in this culture, uh, children weren't regarded as important or, or influential or significant in sort of the cultural sense, not when they're little. They weren't, they weren't seen that way. They had little to no influence, including them in your party, as it were, didn't elevate your status in any way, didn't help you further on in your career journey or your political position. It wouldn't win you any friends. <laughs> Some of us know that, that sometimes that doesn't win us friends today. But nonetheless, um, and they couldn't give you anything in return by welcoming the little child. And, and, and then what's more, children weren't seen as sort of spiritually virtuous. They weren't seen as spiritual examples. They were, they were often viewed as stubborn little imps who needed the, 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 you know, the whatever driven from them so that they could become holy and good. They weren't, they weren't seen as something you'd look at as an example of spiritual uh, life that Jesus seems to be doing. This little child represents culturally the least powerful, the least influential, the least exemplary person that you could really imagine that could do nothing for you. And Jesus says to, to his disciples, you know, if you welcome, if you include, if you invite, if you host people like this, then you're going to be welcoming, including, hosting me and my Father. This is powerful countercultural stuff. It was countercultural then in a, in a society where everyone was ranked, where, where you often tried to do something that could somehow get you connected to the right people or somehow elevate your status, where if you knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy, maybe then your kid could get a better job or maybe something like that could happen. Everything was about position and patron and client and trying to figure all this stuff out, where everything was calculated, where this conversation, you know, ranking who's the greatest Though it sounds weird to us, it was actually not that odd. Remember, Jesus talked about times um, in other parables, which gives us this window into the culture that day, where, where you come to a meal and people would be set down according to their rank, right? Kind of according to their cultural position. And remember, Jesus says, don't sit too high up on the table. Because you don't want to be shamed in front of everybody when, when you get bunted down further because you just were loaded presumptuous sitting a little too close to the host, right? He said, sit down at the end. And then, and then if the host says, oh, Val, don't sit down at the end. Come up a little closer. Then you'll be elevated in the status of everyone. This is what this world was like. 
And Jesus is telling them, don't do that. He's saying, take the last place. Serve the least. Welcome into your party. Welcome into your life. People like this little child. And we can translate that. We have to translate that. Say, who would that be in our lives? Who would be that least exemplary, least, least influential, least helpful person that might be who I need to welcome, I need to love? This is challenging stuff. And if we've hung around church circles, we've, we've heard this before. The true greatness is service. It's not really new to us. But I was challenged, as I thought about it, that there's some personal questions that we need to ask. Like, how do I actually measure success in my life? How do I measure greatness? Maybe when I look at others, but maybe when I evaluate my own life. Maybe when I look back at my life. Maybe when I look forward. Maybe when I look around. How am I measuring greatness? Am I taking the cultural ideals of wealth and power and am I saying, that's, that's what I need to aspire to? That's what I need to line my life up around? That's, that's what I need to pursue? Am I allowing the cultural standards of our days to influence my vision of what it means to be great or have a great family or live a great life? Because Jesus looks at that and he says, put it all aside. If you want to be truly great, you take the last place. So I ask myself, how do I measure success? How do I evaluate my life according to these standards that Jesus doesn't even recognize? Jesus doesn't even see. What does it mean for me to be great? What does it mean for you to be great? I thought about maybe bringing it a little more personal. In what ways do I serve in order to get noticed? In what ways do I do I, do I give or do I care or I, I do things in order to somehow elevate my status in people's eyes? Or maybe the reverse. What about those times when I do it and I maybe don't receive the recognition that I wished I'd received or I think I should have received or, and, and I feel a little bit put out by it because I should have been noticed. I should have been acclaimed somehow. I wouldn't maybe say it that way, but, you know, this is, this is significant. I, was really, I really sacrificed my hour for you or I really... You know, shoot, I helped you move on Saturday and, and, and all I got was pizza? <laughs> you know, uh, that, that kind of thing. The, the, the ways in which we begin to then evaluate even our own lives and our, our own actions around maybe a subtle status or a subtle sense of, I did this for me and no one recognized it. There's so many questions here and I think it's worth meditating on. I, I think as we consider our own lives, we have to ask, well, how does this really apply to me? I mean, I don't know how Sheldon's going to live it out, or John, or Ruth. It's going to be different for each of us, but the challenge, Jesus said, is whoever wants to be great must be the last and serve everyone else. That's what it means to follow Jesus, this Jesus. See, the disciples are struggling because they, they want to follow Jesus. It's just they want to follow some other Jesus, Right? They want to follow a Jesus who's going to be victorious. They want to follow Jesus who has a sword in his hand. They want to follow Jesus who kicks some royal butt when he comes into Jerusalem. That's the Jesus they want to follow. And Jesus says, that's not me. I'm going to a cross. I'm going to show you what greatness looks like by suffering and dying. And if you want to follow me, that's the road you have to take. And how that comes down to the everyday life, it comes down to who we serve, the positions we take. 
the life we pursue, the priorities of our calendar, the priorities of our day, the priorities of our heart and mind, the priorities of our banking account. It all comes down to that. Who are you going to serve? What position are you going to take? Well, we have a few moments for discussion. Roger, would you be willing to do this? Um, Let's ask the question, and you can ask any question you want, but, but the kind of question that I was thinking is, how does this Jesus model of greatness challenge the way that you view your success or we view our success today? How does this model of greatness, the Jesus model, the way that he lived, the way that he taught, the way that he died, the way that he rose again, how does it challenge your personal view of success? Anyone want to respond to that, or maybe you have a more general question you'd like to ask or comment, let's, let's, let's talk about it a little bit together. Roger, maybe come halfway up this line and then you can throw it at people. <laughs> good. Yeah. Anyone want to start the ball today? Thoughts? Questions? I don't know your name. Diana. Diana. Wonderful, Diana. Go to the church there. Um, I think it it forces us to be humble. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do something great, not to, to tell anybody about it, brag about it, just yeah. let it be. Yeah. And people will, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's so humbling to really give sacrificially and not be rewarded, not be noticed. To selflessness. It's the selflessness of Jesus, right? And let's be honest, that's hard. It's hard. I'd like someone to notice, right? It's hard. That's exactly right. Jesus sees it. And the promise is, you know, it's this not working for reward and yet receiving this most amazing reward of Jesus and his Father in your life. That welcome, he thought, you know, if you welcome this little child, you welcome me. And if you welcome me, you welcome my father. I mean, the reward is amazing. But it's different than anything that our world says is a reward. Yeah. Anyone else? Becky. I was just thinking it's, it's kind of the other way. It's because we so often compare what we give or we think we can't give what we should give or what other people expect us to give, but it's okay to just give what you can. And, and that little, what we see as little, is just as great as the huge amount. Oh, I so agree, Becky. Uh, right behind Shane. Another, yeah. So how I try to live my life, and it, it, is, it is challenging, is to live of the world, but not in the world. And that's how I try. Yeah. So. That's great. Thank you. You know, when I was reflecting on this, I, um, Becky, your comment around um, it's often the tiny, the little, the seemingly insignificant thing. That's the kingdom of God at work in people's lives. And, and what can seem tiny or unnoticed is is what literally shifts history. Maybe just for that child. Maybe for just that person. But in the eyes of God and his kingdom, um, he does amazing stuff through tiny acts of love and generosity and kindness. That mustard seed of faith that just grows, right? Yeah. Other comments or questions today? 
Oh, John. Thanks, Ruth. I did not see your hand. wonder like uh, that Jesus was so humble for us and it teaches us a lesson but yet I'm sure you're known people that have pride pride is nice but the pride that they use actually overcomes uh, their uh, I don't know their thinking and they hurt themselves with this pride and I've noticed two or three that I had employees and they were proud, or they were just so proud of whatever they'd done. And yet, in the long run, with the other crews that they worked, they hurt themselves because their pride actually uh, just brought him down to negative as far as we're concerned. Yeah. You're right, John. We've seen that as examples, right? Yeah. Pride destroys relationships and ultimately destroys yourself. Anyone else? Ruth? At work, I listened to a radio station out just south of uh, Abbotsford. But anyways, the other day they were asking people to phone in and tell them people that were their heroes and what they had done. And, and I just thought to myself, you know what? You're taken away if you do that. You've actually taken away the humbleness of their giving, of their... You know, I don't think we should do that. We shouldn't... I mean, it's kind of a hard thing, but... Certainly should ask people, do you want to be recognized for this or not? And, and I also see in my own life, which is always a challenge, is to really do things as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then if, if he approves of you, you don't need other people's yeah. admiration or whatever. Yeah. I think we'd all agree that we want to be grateful people. You know, we want to have a, a culture of gratitude so that when someone does serve me or does something beautiful or that, and I know about it, that, that I do want to be the kind of person that expresses that gratitude and that thanks to them. But I, I think the challenge is for us, for us when we're the people serving that we're not doing it just for that gratitude or we're not doing it to be noticed or, and then upset when it doesn't happen. So... You know, I, I don't know how we walk that, but say, when we're serving, we serve just to serve Jesus. But when we're being served, let's make sure to thank people. <laughs> you know, let's, let's be the kind of people who recognize and are thankful for the gifts that people give and affirm and encourage. Um, not, not, it's not about bolstering their pride, but it's about being a grateful people and, uh, and having gratitude for the ways that people are using their gifts and they you touched your life. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a journey that we walk, a challenge, I suppose. Yeah. Roger. It a little bit like the don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing kind of a thing. Yeah, I've never really understood what that verse means, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think you have, that could be one way of applying it, right? Saying I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm not, I'm not going to be trying to make it connect in such a way that it brings glory to me or, 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 or even moves my case forward. Or, you know, I'm not using it for ambition's sake. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge, yeah. Other comments? Becky? And just processing the thoughts. And I think and with pride, I think it's just a good thing to acknowledge that having pride, we should have some pride. Yes. And that it's okay. We live in a culture where we're like never good enough. And it's okay oh, to yeah. be proud of the things you do. But it's that fine line between proud and having pride and being prideful. Right? Like it's a fine line. Absolutely. And it's how you show your pride. So just wanted to say, because I think there's a lot of people, maybe I'm 
the only one that ever struggles with that kind of stuff. But it's hard because you're like, I'm really proud, but you don't want to sound boastful or right. overly proud. But yeah. it's that fine line, right? We want our kids to be proud of what they do. We want our young adults to be proud, yeah. but not prideful. Yeah, it's having the right perspective about who you are as a loved, precious creation of God, right? I mean, uh, we talked at different times, we talked about, uh, uh, well, let me just name it. We've talked about sexuality and how important it is for our young people and for anyone to understand how valued they are, how precious they are, how loved they are, so that they have the kind of right pride. I think maybe pride is a tricky word, but that sense of, I'm, I'm, I'm better than that. <laughs> you know, in a good sense, God created me, God made me, and so, darn it, I'm keeping my pants on, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and giving people the boldness to be able to say, uh, I'm, I'm so valued, I'm so precious that, um, you know, unless you're willing to put a ring on my finger, I'm not going to get into bed with you, that kind of thing. And that's having good pride, like that sense of, I'm a whole person, loved by God, I'm precious to God, and so I'm going to act. I don't know, I'm making some of you feel very squirmish right now. (laughs) But it's true. And so having that kind of right pride, I think what Jesus is talking about is, particularly into a culture that says, I need to do this and do that, and, and, and I need to position myself here, and I need to be nice to this person. And I don't know, who cares about that guy, because he can't do nothing for me. I need, to, I need to try to work my way up. And I need to climb, I need to claw, and if I push some people down the ladder, who cares, right? I'm using that ladder analogy, but you know what I'm saying? It's that kind of culture that says, um, do whatever it takes to get it, to, to become better. Make it better for your family. And Jesus is saying, wow, I did not come to earth to make life easier for you. I mean, if you follow me, I think there's certain things that will get easier. I do. I believe that. I believe that when you're truly loving uh, each other in your marriage, that though there's hardness in that, you will have a better marriage. I believe that's true. But I, I, I just, Jesus is saying to these guys, follow me to the cross. And if there's anything we hear of this is that we're not positioning ourselves under the, under the leadership of Jesus to somehow achieve some cultural ideal of greatness. And that's, that's true for us individually. That's true for us as families. It's true for us as a church. What does it mean for us to be a great church? What does it mean for me to be a great pastor? That's a funny thought. And what does that mean? And, and, and how easily we could begin to even evaluate our community life around standards that aren't anything to do with Jesus. I mean, he would say, Erickson Covenant, you want to be a great church? Take the last place and serve those. Serve everyone. Serve those who don't do you any good, as it were. Serve those who aren't very easy to serve and love. That's what he'd say to us, right? That's what he is saying to us. Uh, So having the right perspective on who we are doesn't elevate us into this clawing thing, Calling for greatness, but nor does it, and I think what you're saying back is so true, nor does it become this low estimation where as though we don't matter. That's nonsense. We're created in the image of God. As Christian followers of Jesus, we're the body of Christ. This is amazing. This is good. This is, this is powerful. This is healthy. And uh, you're right, Becky, that there are many among us who has, have been so wounded and so damaged in their understanding of who they are that, 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 that they feel, you feel maybe like you're way down here and you're not worth much. And that's a lie. I mean, the thing is, is this Jesus we're talking about, the reason, the whole reason he's on this road to Jerusalem, the whole reason he's going to hang on the cross is because you're valuable. 
because he passionately loves you, because he sees the wounds in your heart and in your body, and he sees your broken relationships. He sees everything that you've been going through, and he says, I'm going to take this road of suffering so that you can be restored, so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be healed. That's why he's on this track in the first place. That raises us way up. And I think maybe that's what you're getting at, Becky. This raises us way up, but not because we clawed our way to the top. Not because we crushed others, but because we realize in the eyes of Jesus, he values us so much. And he did that by taking the last place, <laughs> by serving us all. Any final thoughts or reflections today as we get toward the end? Yes. Um, getting, referring, as we're made in God's image and all good things come from him, um, we challenge God's authority when we sing like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Yes, it's true. That, that is the cultural ideal, right? I did it my way. Well, I encourage you to continue to reflect on this. I think the first way that we can respond to this is gratitude. Ah, you know, when we begin to understand that this Jesus who's calling us to follow him was willing to endure all that he endured, you know, not, not just, I mean, the pain and the suffering, and, and this is where the story marks going, but I'm even thinking the fact that here he is, surrounded by his closest followers, and they do not get him. We all know what it's like to be misunderstood. Here he's trying to share his core identity with them. He's trying to, trying to help them capture a vision for who he is, so that when they follow him, they're more set up, at least, for the suffering and the pain that's to come. I am so thankful for Jesus. And I think that's our first response as we, as we think about all the challenge that this entails for us personally. First of all, we recognize that this Jesus is amazing. This Jesus who had all power, the Son of God, the fact that he would let that go so that he'd become one of us, so that you and I could be restored into right relationship with God, so you and I could be healed, I think if anything, if you walk away with anything today, it's to look at Jesus and see the amazing love and passion that Jesus has for us, that he would do this for us, that he would walk this road for us. Yes, he's calling us to walk that road too, and there's hardness in that, but first off, Jesus is so committed to your redemption, to your healing. He's so committed to making us as a people holy and blameless, us as a people shaped like him, that he was willing to do all this, take that last place, look like a loser and a failure in the eyes of the world, hang on that Roman cross. Well, Roman crosses stand for Rome saying, we're the greatest. And just to prove it, we're going to hang a bunch of people on a cross so everyone can see, see that we're the greatest. And Jesus took that place for us. He hung there for us, saying this is what it means to be truly great. Because I love you. 
I'm willing to do this for you. I think our first response is that gratefulness. We're entering into the week of Thanksgiving and there's nothing to be more grateful for than this Jesus who loves us and who leads us and who continues to call us to follow him, having done everything for us. So I think that's the first. But the second, all, the second is that challenge we've talked about today. Where am I struggling in my service to others? Where, where is there someone that I've been serving and I'm not feeling very thanked? Is there some position I've been in that I feel like I should claw my way out of? Is there someone around me who, who needs to experience the love of Jesus just through being noticed? Just through having someone look them in the eyes and care for them? Where am I struggling with that? And how does Jesus teaching his example help me to live the greatness of the kingdom of God in my own personal life? What does that look like for you? The thought of the many of you who serve already in places that you're unnoticed. I, I, I do. I always think of you moms at home with kids or, or, or working with kids at home. I think of the ways that my mother and I've watched Tamil and I've watched others, uh, the way that you serve kids on a daily level, moms and dads. I should not be so sexist to say only moms, moms and dads. But I think of those of you who serve full-time in a capacity of caregiving, and uh, it's pretty thankless. Maybe you're a grandparent helping your, your kids with their kids. Maybe you are serving a, a neighbor's kids. Maybe it's your own. And I'm just thinking about the thankless way, the serving in day in, day out, and just to encourage you that you too can see that role in light of the greatness of the kingdom of God that you're loving on these kids in a kingdom way and it makes a huge difference. I was thinking about some of you older kids serving aging parents and the ways that that can often be thankless and difficult. But there's a kingdom of God is present there too. Whether you're serving a lonely neighbor or you're helping a neglected kid or whether you're just faithfully serving in prayer for this church and for this valley and for the, the, the lives of your own family members. You're, you're laboring in prayer in an unseen, unnoticed way. I just want to encourage you that that too is greatness in the kingdom of God. Reaching your hand out to a stranger, loving our kids, serving. I, I, I know I highlighted last week the need for men, I believe, to serve in our children's ministry. Reaching out to serve our kids even here on Sunday morning. Inviting people for a coffee or into your home. People that may never be able to reciprocate. This is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. This is what it means to be great in the eyes of Jesus. And I think as a community, as a church, we can be truly great. By serving those who are last in the eyes of the world. By serving in ways that aren't seeking to be noticed. We can become a church filled with last place kind of people. Serving a last place Messiah who died to save the lost of this world, you and I. And, and this is the vision, I think, that fills my heart today. You know, we heard the story, and we know kind of roughly how the story ends, but Jesus, this last place loser Messiah, after death, 
after this humiliating, taking the place of a servant and being humble and obedient like, a, like in Philippians to, to, to death, and not just the normal death, but death on the cross, we read that God exalted him because of that. From last place to first place, exalted over all, Jesus was elevated to the place of highest honor and given the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus that we're following. I'd like us to close today by singing a song. Um, I don't know, I think we've sung it here before, but um, it's fairly simple. I'll lead it. But I ask you today, Uh, to rise and to sing this as a closing prayer for us, as an expression of our desire to follow the humble King, Jesus, as he calls us to be truly great in the eyes of God.